Financial literacy is a means to an end, right? Like you can't achieve financial freedom if you don't have the information and the behaviors that are going to get you there. College taught me how to work for money, but they never taught me how to make my money work for me. And that's what I learned. We also had an interest in, you know, trying to pass down, you know, uh, resources to not only our children, but their children. You know, I believe the Bible, you know, says, you know, a good man leaves an inheritance for his children's children. So, you know, we definitely want to, to, to do that as well. And for me, it's just a matter of uh, executing those items, the uh, implementing financial literacy, knowing what to do in a certain situation, knowing how to go about paying off debt as an example. Uh, without that knowledge, it's really hard to do because you just kind of muddle through and without having a clear direction, it's really hard to accomplish goals like that. Just as you have something systemic within your body, and we talk about systemic racism, it's almost systemic within our culture um, not to be literate. It's not because of something we didn't do, it's because of what we didn't know. And now that we know better um, through programs like DFree, we can do better and we can spread that word to our people so that we can kind of wipe that history clean so it doesn't repeat itself and we can kind of build that foundation. Um, Financial literacy and financial freedom has been a long time passion of mine. Uh, I will tell you that I did not necessarily grow up in a household um, that talked about money, that talked about finances. Uh, we didn't talk about necessarily investing, uh, life insurance, or any of those things. One thing that I began to notice um, really was generational wealth uh, that was being transferred uh, amongst communities of um, that were not communities of color. I began to learn or hear about debt-free living. And I thought, oh my gosh, you know, people do this. People actually live debt-free. I decided to learn more about that and once again, take the next step. Those next steps made all the difference. I think I've seen firsthand what the burden um, and stress of debt and really even poor financial management does to a family, to a person. I've seen that firsthand really my whole life. Um, and, and frankly, I think I was taught more how to be broke, how to manage being broke more so than anything. Financial literacy, I think, is critical in being able to not only pass on something for your kids financially as well as knowledge, but I think financial literacy is an important tool in being able to be a good steward for what you have. You know, I, I, I've had overdrawn bank accounts and it wasn't until I got into a kind of a clearing financially and, and started learning more about managing money and, and being committed to the day-to-day -day battle against the desire to consume unhealthily. Um, it wasn't until that that I really understood what it was to try to be a better student.
Come on, let's give the Lord a hand clap of praise. Amen. Yeah. Let's bow together for a moment of prayer. Father, we thank you again for your presence in this place. We thank you for your purposes. And Lord, we thank you for all the scholarship recipients that we've seen through Let's Elevate today. And we pray for their path, their educational path, their spiritual path, and how you intend to use them for the kingdom. We ask your blessings upon them. And Lord, now that we come to this season where I believe you're leading us to deal with our money, specifically giving and also financial literacy, God, speak to our hearts. Because I know ultimately, Lord, you want us blessed financially. You want us free. Because when we're free financially, we are free to serve you. And so, God, have your way in this place. Be honored. Be glorified in our giving. In Jesus' name, amen. Come on, let's give the Lord one more hand clap of praise together. A couple things I need to say. I want to give another hand clap of praise to Let's Elevate, to Ricky and Raquel and Lisa for this year's scholarship recipients. Come on, y'all. Let's bless the Lord. Let's, that's wonderful. As we've been able to be a blessing to those who... Um, who want to go further and want to do um, to do even more in terms of uh, income and taking care of their families and things like that and trying to do their best. And so we, we want to surely support that as, much, as best we can. Also, too, um, today, obviously, we're going into a new series, Giving God Our Best in Giving. And, and we're, we want that to coincide with the D-Free um, uh, seminars that we'll be offering in September. So I want to encourage you, if you haven't done D-Free, you need to do it. Um, I know of one couple, and they, they may be sharing their testimony. They did D-Free last year. Guess what? They in our house this year, y'all. Oh, you don't need Okay, I got it. I got it. You don't, you, I know. You, you don't need a house. I know. Pastor, I don't need a house. I'm good. I'm good. All right. Okay. But anyway, it's it's a great program. One of the best. I've been doing ministry for quite some time, and Sometimes certain financial programs don't quite fit with where the ministry takes place. D-Free is, is phenomenal. Dr. Soros has really been a blessing. I want to get him back. Uh, he came to us by video last year at our anniversary. I want to get him here in person because he's a wonderful spirit and, and he's the architect of the whole D-3 movement and program. And so take advantage of that. We're not trying to get D-Free to get you to give. No, we're just trying to give you a holistic vision of God's uh, purposes when it comes to our money. Because how many of y'all know when we handle it God's way, more money comes our way? Amen? Tell your neighbor, just want God to, just want to handle it God's way. That's all. That's all. That's all we're trying to do. And so that's what we're trying to do. And then also, too, I need y'all to do me a favor. I uh, was blessed to be a part of a celebration that took place Friday, and he's here. And I'm going to honor you, brother. Carl Ozan is officially retired. Come on and let's celebrate our brother. <laughs> Man, we are happy for you. And uh, we've been counting down for about a year and a half. <laughs> and so, <clears throat> excuse me. And so we made it, and, and I'm just really happy for him. And I know God's got a lot more for you to do, man. Congratulations to you and to your family. <coughs> Excuse me. Amen. Let's go ahead and get into our, our message for today, what I believe God has for us. Um, 
Our meditation text is found in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 7. And listen to what Paul says. Uh, Since you excel in so many ways in your faith, your gifted speakers, your knowledge, your enthusiasm, and your love for us, I want you to excel also in the gracious act of giving. Paul says you're gifted in so many ways. You do so many things well. I also want you to be gifted when it comes to giving. And we hope to explain that in this series. Amen. Our main text is found in a couple of scriptures, and we're going to look at a number of scriptures. I really want to give you a theology on this uh, giving idea. And so look what um, Exodus chapter 40, verse 34 and 35 says. Then the cloud covered the tabernacle, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses could no longer enter the tabernacle because the cloud had settled over it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And then Leviticus chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 says this. And the Lord called to Moses from the tabernacle and said to him, Give the following instructions to the people of Israel when you present an animal or an offering, or present an animal as an offering, or Corban is the Hebrew word, to the Lord. You may take it from the herd of your cattle or your flock and sheep and goats. And then Leviticus 9, verses 23 through 24 reads like this. Then Moses and Aaron went into the tabernacle, and when they came out, they blessed the people again, and the glory of the Lord appeared to the whole congregation. Fire blazed forth from the Lord's presence and consumed the burnt offering and the fat on the ark. And when the people saw this, they shouted with joy and fell face down on the ground. And I want to talk about the heart of giving. I want to talk about the heart of giving. <clears throat> and, and today's principle, church, I believe is, is critical to understanding giving uh, because it doesn't surprise me that we live in a day where Christians and non-Christians don't want to deal or talk about giving. If you can't say amen, say ouch. <laughs> The truth is we live in a day in which giving has been abused, misused, and mischaracterized. And I believe many times we don't understand God's original idea, the original purpose, when it comes to giving. How many of you all heard of the story about the bishop in New York who was robbed in his storefront church at gunpoint? I know you have. Just say amen. It surely is a tragedy that it happened on a Sunday morning. But it is a far greater tragedy that it happened to an individual that was wearing 400 to possibly a million dollars in jewelry. Does anybody agree there's something wrong with that picture? (laughs) Particularly with a congregation of what, less than 30 or 40 people, and then living in a place of possibly poverty. And it is these kinds of stories that do vandalism to giving in the Christian church. And it really causes us to raise the question, what did God have in mind with giving? Or better, what is the heart of giving? And that's what I want to share today. That's what I want to get at. And so I want to look at a couple of stories. I want to look at a couple of scriptures, specifically the text we look at. Now, hopefully and prayerfully, we come away with a better understanding of why God gave giving and really a better understanding of what grace is all about. The first one starts with the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3. 
And in this story, God creates this garden. And he creates this garden because it's the idyllic place where God and man can come together in a safe and sacred space. It's a place where God and man can meet without fear, without trepidation, with complete transparency and trust. No fear of reprisal. No no sense of God's wrath. Just uninhibited presence of God. And the people were given the privilege of enjoying God's presence. That's what God had in mind with Adam and Eve. Matter of fact, if you want to understand the kingdom and what the future holds for Christians, it's more than just getting to heaven. What, what Christianity is about, it's not just getting us to a place, it's getting us to the God in that place. What makes heaven is the God who inhabits heaven. And what makes that place so wonderful is that we will have this relationship with God, just like Adam and Eve had in the garden, that will be one without fear, one without trepidation, one that is full, fully transparent, where we will see God as he is and God will see us as we are. And that's what we see in Genesis chapter 3. God creates this space, this garden, a place where Adam and Eve can commune, meet, and share and dwell with God without fear. But something happened. The Bible says that the serpent showed up with a proposal. Tell your neighbor, there's always a snake somewhere in the story. (laughs) Shows up with a proposal to Adam and Eve to eat the fruit that God specifically commanded that the people were not to eat. And they ate the fruit. That's what verse 6 says. And the woman was convinced, so she saw that the tree was beautiful and its fruit looked delicious. And she wanted the wisdom that it would give her. So she took some of the fruit and ate it, and then she gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it too. And then from this one act, sin came into the world. This one act came severe consequences. I don't have time to go through all the consequences, but the main consequence was death. That is, with the disobedience of God's command, death corrupted humanity. And not only did it corrupt humanity, and many times that's the story we hear that man fell into sin, and that's right. Death did corrupt humanity, but death also contaminated the garden. It was no longer a safe place where God and man could dwell. It was completely contaminated. And therefore, God had to do something. Now, I need to talk a little bit about death. Because God said that in the day that you eat of the fruit, you shall surely die. They ate the fruit. But they did not die the same day physically. But they did die. How did they die, Pastor? They died spiritually. What does that mean? They lost their relationship with God. They they lost connection with God. They were no longer in fellowship with God. They did not have the spiritual covering of blessing and flourishing from God. They had to live in a place without the presence of God because they chose to have a life that did not include God. And I need to park here for just a minute because you want to know what's wrong with our society. It's because we're living in a time 
where people have willfully chosen to live a life without God. People have chosen that, listen, I want to live without constraint. I want to live without morality. I want to define my own sense of identity. I want to determine my own sense of meaning. And in trying to find their own meaning, they're discovering that life is meaningless. Because <laughs> how many of y'all know if God's not in it, it surely ain't going to have any meaning. And so the, the wise sage of the Old Testament, Solomon, was right when he said it's like chasing after the wind. And that's what we see in our society that, that chooses to live without God. It's like chasing after the wind. You want to know why people are so quick to shoot one another? They're chasing after the wind. You want to know why social media has become the new cancel culture and the bully space? It's because society is chasing after the wind. You want to know why there's so much emptiness and anxiety and hopelessness in our culture? Because society has chosen to chase after, after the wind. You want to know why there's so much division in our families, in our communities, and yes, in our church? Because we're chasing after the wind. We're trying to do life in a way that somehow excludes God out of the equation. And Solomon was right. It's like chasing after the wind. And Adam and Eve, much like society, chose to live life without God. But what I love about that text is, though man did not want God, God never stopped wanting man. How many of y'all know God is still a God of grace? I know many of us, we're used to hearing about the grace of God in the Old Testament, but I'm here to tell you God is a God of grace from Genesis to Revelation. God is a God of grace from eternity past to eternity future. God is always a God of grace. Because Genesis 3 closes with a wonderful blessing. The Bible says that God made garments to cover Adam and Eve. And those garments came from a hide of an animal. In a word, God provided a gift. God provided an offering, a sacrifice. For Adam and Eve, watch this, Adam and Eve sinned. They deserve judgment. How does God respond? He responds with grace. God responds to the corruption in man with the gift of a sacrifice that is grace. And with that sacrifice, he seeks to restore the relationship that was lost and that was corrupted. Who said there wasn't grace in the Old Testament? <laughs> and so with that gift, God restores this broken relationship, this corrupted relationship through a sacrifice. Somebody says, well, Pastor, wait a minute. He still put him out the garden. And to you, I say, you ask some wonderful questions. <laughs> Very good question. Yes, he restored the relationship, but he put him out the garden. Why? Because number one, if he doesn't put them out the garden, the Bible says they could have eaten of what is called the tree of life, which means in a corrupted state, they would have been able to eat of the tree of life, eternal life, and they would have lived forever without ever dying and yet experiencing suffering, misery, and pain forever. Put it another way, imagine that you have a bout of diarrhea, but it's with you for the rest of your life. At least you can die from it. 
so that you can be relieved of it. But if they eat of the tree, that means they would have lived forever with the pain of diarrhea forever. Tell your neighbor, God is a God of grace, y'all. Oh, yes, he is. That's one reason. But the second reason is man was corrupted. The second reason was the garden was contaminated. The garden was of no use. It was a sacred space. It was a place where God could meet with man. It was a sacred and safe place. It was holy. And now it had become defiled. Therefore, it was not usable for a relationship. And I'll tell you what I told the Bible study. Imagine you have a house pet, a dog or a cat, and you go away on a trip for four or five days. And you leave that dog and cat in the house with plenty of food, but no way to get outside the house or off the premises to relieve itself. How many of y'all know when you return on the fifth day, that place is defiled? (laughs) There's some things that will have to be thrown out, amen? (laughs) Matter of fact, you may have to redo the entire floor just to get the smell out. You may have to do some painting. And the real sisters in the house will say, no, I need a brand new home. Say amen with me. The garden had become defiled, which prepares us for our text today, which is my second point, the new garden of Eden. Because the old garden was defiled, God needed another place where he can meet with man. And that is the tabernacle. And in our second story, for the first time since the Garden of Eden, God attempts to create a place where he and mankind can meet together. Here, the nation of Israel. And the tabernacle, in a word, becomes the new Garden of Eden. It becomes the place on earth where God can meet with man safely and they can have a relationship. Matter of fact, God instructed Moses to build this tabernacle with very specific uh, specifications. And he told him to build it, watch this, before the golden calf event. Because it was the golden calf event that brought the need for the tabernacle. Well, what is the golden calf event? The golden calf event occurred when Moses was on the mountain for 40 days. And when it appeared that something had happened to Moses, they said, look, I don't know what happened to Moses. We need to create our own form of worship. And they developed a calf, and that became the item that they gave glory to as to who brought them out of Egypt. And God was upset about it. And the golden calf event really taught us one thing. It taught us that if man doesn't worship God, he going to worship something. That all of us by nature are creatures of worship. That's why I don't understand folk who come to church and can't worship God. Because if you're not worshiping God in church, it must mean you're worshiping something else somewhere else. But we were made to worship and honor God. And so God brings the tabernacle as a substitute for the golden calf experience so that man has a place to worship. But notice he built, he gave the instructions for the tabernacle before the golden calf event. I like that. Because how many of y'all know that God always has a plan B 
before your plan A messes up. <laughs> I love that about God. God knew that Israel was going to jack up plan A. So while Israel was planning on messing up plan A, God was already working on plan B. And I don't know who I'm talking to today. Maybe your plan A is a mess. The good news of the gospel is that God already got a plan B, baby. Preach, Autry, I am. Ha. So he instructs them to build a tabernacle. And when he builds that tabernacle, the Bible says they completed in verse 40. And look what happens. The Shekinah glory cow that led them through the wilderness inhabited that tabernacle. And look what it says in verse 34. Then the cloud covered the tabernacle and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle and Moses could no longer enter the tabernacle because the cloud settled down over it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So God tells them to build this tabernacle, build this new garden of Eden. This will be the place where I will meet with Israel It'll be the new garden, just like Adam and Eve with God. They build the tabernacle. God comes into the tabernacle, but Moses can't come in. And many times as Christians, when we read this, we shout because the glory showed up. But in the text, you don't see the people shouting. Because what's the sense of shouting if God can go in the sanctuary, but nobody else can go in the sanctuary? Why would you tell the people, God, to build a sanctuary in which man and God can come together and you're the only one that can go in? Tell your neighbor, Leviticus 1, verse 1. Now we're ready for the next verse. Here's what it says. I love this. And the Lord God called to Moses. See that little word? From the tabernacle. They were standing on the outside because they couldn't go in. And Leviticus, which is about offering, was a way in which the people could come into the tabernacle. The Lord called to Moses from the tabernacle and said to him, uh, give the following instructions to the people. When you present an animal as an offering to the Lord, you may take it from your herd of cattle or your flock or your sheep and goats. The phrase present an animal, it is a word that literally means when you want to draw close to God. When you want to draw close to him and notice this, it is a voluntary act. This is not mandatory. Each offering that God prescribes is a choice that the people can make if they want to be close to God. And so watch this. God builds or he instructs Moses to build a tabernacle as a gift so that he can have communion with his people And the people respond with an offering. They respond in appreciation for the tabernacle by giving an offering. And over the next seven chapters, Moses will prescribe five types of offerings that will be a way or a manner in which the people of God can approach God in the tabernacle. 
And then once he does that, something happens in chapter 9. In chapters 1 through 7, he prescribes the offerings. In chapter 8, he consecrates the priests. And the priests are the representatives for the people. They go into the tabernacle and they represent the people before God. And then in chapter 9, they have a consecration service. And something happens. Look at what it says. Leviticus chapter 9. Verse 23, then Moses and Aaron did what? Did what? Did what? They went in. They couldn't go in in Exodus 40. But once they responded with a gift, they were able to go in. Look what it says. And when they came back out, They blessed the people again, and the glory of the Lord appeared before the whole community. Fire blazed forth from the Lord's presence, consumed the burnt offering, and the fat on the offering. Look what it says. And when the people saw this, they shouted. They didn't shout in Exodus 40. They shouted in Leviticus 9. Why? Because now they had access to the new Garden of Eden. Now... They had responded by giving an offering. And so here it is. And if I had to give you my thesis, and I'm, you notice I didn't give you my thesis up front. I had to give it to you in the end. But I'll give it to you right here. Giving is simply a response to the gift that God has already given. That's giving. Giving is a response to the gracious gift that God has already given. Let me give you an example. So put here Abraham, Genesis 12. God gives Abraham a vision. I need you to leave your countrymen, leave your family, leave your hood. Go to a land that I will show you. I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to bless you more than anybody else. Your seed is going to be blessed. I'm going to bless every nation and family of the earth through you. And Abraham obeys the vision. And then when he gets to the land, God says this to him in verse 7. To your descendants... I will give this land. And then Abraham builds an offering. I'm sorry, builds an altar, altar, and offers an offering. Don't miss this. In that culture, it was very common in other religions that you gave the offering first, and then the prospective God or idol would give a revelation. So you gave the offering to get a revelation. But in this one, God gives the revelation of the promise first. And Abraham proves that he received the promise by giving an offering. See, the truth is, Abraham could have have received the revelation and he could have said, oh, that's really nice. But until you show up and put me in the land permanently, I ain't giving you anything. Or he could have said, is that what you wanted me to come out here for? I didn't move my family all the way out here to Haran, the hood, and this is what you talking about you're going to give me? I'm going back. That's not what he did. He got a promise, a gracious gift in the form of a promise. And what did he do? He responded with an offering.
So why do we give? Giving is more than an obligation. It's a response to what God has already done. Let me wrap this thing up. Three, the final garden. Revelation 21 and 22. Revelation 21 and 3. I didn't put it in your, t- in your notes, but you can add Revelation 21 and 3 as well. He says, I saw no temple in the city. Look what it says. For the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple. And so up to this point, there's always been a physical tabernacle. There's been a garden. There's been a temple. Now there's a shift. The Lamb, Jesus, the Lord God is the tabernacle. The Lord God is the temple. John helped us with that. First he said, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the sin of the the world. And the Lamb there is the atonement Lamb in Leviticus that was offered on the Day of Atonement, which the entire sacrificial system hung on. So that by the sacrifice of Christ, he literally replaced everything with himself. And then John took it even further when he says in John 1 and 14 that the word became flesh and what? Dwelt among us, tabernacled among us. So that now Jesus is not only the sacrifice, he's the tabernacle. He's the sacrifice for us right now that we might have relationship with him. But when he comes back with the kingdom, he will be the tabernacle where we can dwell with him the same way Adam and Eve dwelt with God in the garden. So what's your thesis, Pastor? I'll say it one more time. Giving is a response to God's gracious gift he's already given to us. We're not giving to appease God. We're not giving because God makes us give. No, we give because God has already been good. (laughs) We give because he's already given so much. Ephesians 2. And now it says, for by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, least any man boasts. Then verse 10 says, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. The grace is given in verse 8 and 9, but the response is our lifestyle. If we never respond, maybe we never got the grace. So giving is the response to God's gracious gift. What is the heart of giving? Giving is the response to God's gracious gift. So just a couple things very quickly. Here it is. Uh, Just as they gave, and understand in the the Levitical thing, and and I'm wrapping this thing up, in the Levitical law, they understood that their giving was a symbol. here's Here's my point. They knew that the animal that they were laying on the altar had no salvific value. It had no cleansing. It's just a symbol. It symbolized something. So watch this. They gave believing something was going to happen or something was going to come. Hebrews 8 says, uh, 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 Moses, when he built the tabernacle, it was built according to a pattern. 
the sacrifices were according to a pattern so that when the people brought their animals, they knew that when they brought them, there was no, no cleansing value in shedding the blood of an animal. But it's what the animal represented. And they were looking forward unwittingly to the coming of Christ, who actually is the fulfillment of that. And so what does that mean for our giving? When we give, we look back to what he's already done. But then also we're looking forward to a time where we will see God for as he is. And I hate to tell you, don't think the worship stops when you get to heaven. We will worship him, but we will see him as he is. And we will be his people and we will be in his presence in the kingdom and it will be safe and there will not be any fear. There will not be any disease. There will be no darkness. There will be no evil and the world the way it was supposed to be. God will make the world the way it was supposed to be. So a couple things very quickly. Number one, we give because we're most like God when we give. Okay. Son of man didn't come to be served, but to serve and to what? Give his life as a ransom for many. We can ready to do the Lord's Supper. Take, eat, this is my body, which is what? Given for you. When we give, we're most like God when we give. Number two, we give because we love him. We give because we love him. First John 4, 19, we love because we first because he first loved us. Third, we give because giving more than anything teaches us to trust God. Giving teaches us to lean on him. When you put your eggs in one basket with him, how many of y'all know you are forced to trust him now? <laughs> You'll catch that on the way home. But then number four, we give because we know God continues to give to us. And this is not a spiritual quid pro quo. Too many Christians approach giving with that mindset that somehow when I give to God, God's going to give back to me. But I do believe this. When we give from the heart, we give freely. We give because we love him. We give because we know it all belongs to him. Not only does he provide. Do I have a witness that knows he'll bless you? I'm just asking. Okay. Y'all don't know the difference between provision and blessing. Provision is just to get the bills paid. Provision is just to get you through the week. <laughs> provision is to get you through the month. But blessing is when you got more money than month. Come on, somebody. Blessing is that stuff that gets you go a little bit further than you had planned for the year. It's a bad economy for everybody else, but you sailing through everybody else is drowning in. God is able to provide and bless your life. Ah, oh, let me close with this. Get your cup. We're almost ready. Here it is. Here it is. Close with this. Giving is a response to God's gracious act. We give because he's already given. That's the principle I want you to get. And I wanted you to get the theology of it. It's not something I'm making up. It's right there in scripture. That's what grace is. Stories told of a little boy on his 10th birthday, his uncle gave him 10 silver dollars. He was so happy 
that he immediately got down on the ground and began to budget what he was going to do with his 10 silver dollars. The first one, he said, I'm going to give this to Jesus because the first one belongs to him. The second one, he says, you know what, I'm going to use this to buy this special toy I've been having my eyes on. Third one, I'm going to use this to buy a special sports item. And on and on, he went down and planned each dollar for what he wanted to do. When he got to the last one, he paused. He said, this last one I'm going to give to Jesus. His mother overheard what he said. And the mother said, baby, wait a minute. You, you just said you gave the first one to Jesus. Why are you giving the last one to Jesus too? He said, the first one belongs to Jesus. But the last one is my personal gift to Jesus. You'll catch it on the way home. Oh, church, it all belongs to him. But every now and then, isn't he worthy of a gift? Isn't he worthy to know that we love him? Isn't he worthy to know that, listen, we can't pay for what he's done for us? Giving is a response to what he's already done for us. Father, we bless you and thank you again for your intent with giving. And Lord, you don't want us twisting arms and I know you surely don't want a pastor wearing $400,000 worth of jewelry. We lift that brother up and pray for repentance. But that God, you simply want your people to learn through giving to love like you love. And, and Lord, as we come to the Lord's Supper, would you, would you meet us? I, I'm, I'm praying for many of us because I know this is a tough economy. What pastor preaches about giving in an, an inflationary economy? And I would say one who's led by the Spirit. <laughs> one who's trying to honor you. And so I lift up every father. I lift up every mother. I lift up every brother, every sister every man, every woman, and how you spoke to our hearts. And may you be honored, Father, in this house with the giving that takes place. In Jesus' name, amen.